What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O and the host of the What to Know podcast show. And today I have sitting in our San Francisco office uh, a book author, journalist, and a member of the esteemed San Francisco Writers Grotto. Her name is Diana Cap. Welcome, Diana. Hey, Aaron. Nice to meet you. Well, it's nice to meet you, too. And uh, I'm thrilled to be doing this because not only do you have a new book coming out literally next week, but you did something recently that was incredibly cool and incredibly um, called for, I guess, if you could say that. And we'll get into that in a minute. I do want to start with your bio. So anytime I have guests on here, and I think you're somewhere around the 120th guest I always like to do some research, and being that you're a writer, it made sense, although I've interviewed some writers and journalists, and they're not always as creative as you are. So I want to take a minute to read your bio to the listeners, because I felt like I've read it several times now, and every time I read it, I just love the visual journey, the mental journey that it takes you on, right? So before I drone on too, too much, um, to quote from your bio, it says, my work has taken me inside San Quentin Prison and to deepest Afghanistan. My path to writing has been circuitous. I've worked for a senator in a biotech startup, made ads for Nike, and helped launch women's sportswear uh, retailer Lucy.com. I went to Stanford and got an MBA. I've lived in Kenya and the hate. I love the Sawtooth Mountains, Neil Young, my Sam Running Club, and Climbing Mountains, and I think there are a few other pieces, but I'd love to peel that apart a little bit because, A, what an amazing journey you've had in life, right, to give you such good perspective, and I love that, San Francisco centric all the way to the far parts of the earth, right? So it really has given you that opportunity to to think big. So let's start with uh, the first one, um, San Quentin and Afghanistan. So what's taken you into one of the, I guess, most uh, notorious, It's that's a, a good use of it, notorious prisons in the country, and then across the world to Afghanistan? I went to San Quentin to report a story for San Francisco Magazine that was about a very interesting, innovative program called The Last Mile. So a venture capitalist, Chris Redlitz and his wife. Who has been on the show as a matter of fact. Okay, so he's amazing and visionary. And I was at the very beginning that I went in. I was one of the first writers to document their program. Now they've been everywhere. Anyway, they are going inside San Quentin. They are teaching a course. And the commitment to the prisoners is if you fulfill the requirements of the course, when you get out, we will employ you. So not personally employ you, but harness our network to find a position for you. So they have had um, prisoners work in coding companies and a whole array of startups. And it's just a program that's having incredible results. They're now going into women's prisons. They're expanding outside the Bay Area and into Nevada and other places. And it's a true rehabilitation program. And they, their recidivism is uh, zero to this point. So that was... I'm glad you said that word, by the way. I joked with Chris on the show. I have a hard time saying recidivism. Res- Yes, I'll let you say it. Um, it's nice because they are literally doing good, right? And it's amazing and helping this population that is significantly underserved here in the United States and around the world. And they're doing something that's good for society as well as good for these inmates that, you know, a lot of people give up on and, and just think that they're not worth the time. And obviously, 
there are a lot of them that are very smart and very skilled and very motivated and giving them the second chances is, is what an amazing thing that they're doing. Yeah, it is. It's really, it's a great program. So take us across the world then to Afghanistan. So what, what brought you there? So Afghanistan was also for a story. So um, in 2014, I spent some time getting to know a British obstetrician She's a mother of four children, and she has now built 50 schools in the in far northern, the Takhar province of Af- Afghanistan. She went over there as a medical resident, and she worked in border refugee camps serving, you know, a really difficult population. And she decided that if she wanted to move the country forward, what they needed more than medicine was education. And she doesn't just build schools for girls. She believes that everyone has to be educated because boys are part of the problem. And we can talk about that also in relation to my book. So if you want to have progress for women, everyone needs to view women in a different way. But Sarah Fain and her organization, Afghan Connection, is a really um, – what, what moved me about it is that she, she just started with one school – And then it's like all these efforts that you make, it starts really small and you don't know where it's going. But she went and took that step and built the first school. And then it, you know, it built from there and she developed these relationships that allowed her to keep going. And then she got the government on board and they would take over the schools after she built them. So it's kind of the power of just getting started that really moved me. And what was particularly special about that trip is that my mother came along. So she's been a, she was a teacher for 25 years. And I told her the story about Sarah Fain and she was just totally taken. And she was at the time 78 years old. And, you know, we were sleeping on the floor in these, um, in people's homes, in a really remote part of Afghanistan, driving around where there was, you know, police barricades everywhere we went, and um, the roads were just insane. We'd be driving up the side of a mountain, and we we would blow out tires like many times a day. Um, so it was a real adventure, and it was a memory with my mo- mother that I will never forget. And that was a story that I did for More magazine. Well, that's awesome, and thank you for sharing that. And I can only imagine how much of an adventure that was, and so special that you were able to share it with your mother, who was a teacher. Um, continuing this narrative, and I love, I love this. I'd love to actually just ask you about your bio all day, but we have other cool things that we'll talk about. Um, you worked uh, with a senator, right? Uh, and then uh, you did a biotech startup. So why don't we tackle those two, and then we'll get to the women's sportswear sportswear retailer. Okay. So straight out of the University of Michigan, I went to work for Senator Don Regal, who was the um, senator from Michigan on the banking committee. And um, I I laugh because it was one of those really early out of college jobs. And I'm not detail oriented at all. So I was ostensibly a legislative correspondent. So that's writing letters back to constituents that, you know, write in about different issues. And at the time, it was a lot about um, emission standards because um, Michigan is an automotive state. Um, But one of the jobs I had was to um, 
uh, organized the tickets when constituents were visiting Washington and they wanted to go to the White House and the Capitol. And I'm telling you, half the time, the tickets that were supposed to have been sent to somebody, I would find them like underneath my desk, you know, a month later. It was the worst job to give to someone like me that's not detail oriented. So that's, that's funny. I chalked that up to early mistakes. And well, it's one of those things where it's good to learn that, right? Because I think early days, we don't always know ourselves as well or know why it's not good to be in a role where, you know, if you need to be organized and you're not organized, but clearly you have the writing skills and you've gone down the right path because writing uh, clearly is, is your weapon and your tool and your empowerment now. Um, then let's talk a little bit about how that moved into biotech and biotech startup because that feels like going from, you know, arranging tickets and writing letters and things like that to biotech is a fairly interesting departure. Whenever I think about my life trajectory, I think that my move to the Bay Area, uh, to San Francisco alone when I was 23 years old, um, was it was the pivotal moment that changed everything about my life. So it was a totally scary, terrifying move to make on my own. But I had this feeling inside of me that I just have to go out there and strike out and have independence and try to make it on my own. So I'd grown up in this family that was, you know, in law and politics, and I was a Washington, D.C. girl. And so I wanted to do something entirely different and on my own. So I got this idea in my head. I would move out to San Francisco. And I literally, I didn't know anything about Silicon Valley and biotechnology. I literally thought silicon was something that grew in the ground, okay? But through a family... Sort of does. It doesn't grow, right? But it gets created <laughs> it through gets sand created. and then silicon. But that's funny that that was the case. So... Through a family friend, I ended up interviewing for a job that was literally a biotech company that was uh, filing to have its initial public offering. It was called Affimax. It was founded by one of the one of Silicon Valley's most venerable entrepreneurs, a, a man by the name of Alejandro Zaffaroni. And people joke that like half the uh, biotech companies in Silicon Valley, like they have Alejandro at the top, and then he birthed all these babies, and they birthed babies. Um, but anyway, so they really needed someone that could deal with their communications and investor relations. And it was a total case of right place at the right time. And um, the, the person that hired me, the CFO, he was also from Washington. Um, and he is now uh, the man that I'm married to. So oh, uh, that happened a long twist. time later. But yeah. that happened a long time later. Um, but I, so it was just a complete trial by fire. Um, I took a class in genetics at Stanford, and that was um, 1993. So it was at the moment that we were sequencing the human genome, and human genetics was just exploding, and it was an incredibly exciting place to be. I had my first experience with what it meant to be an entrepreneur, and I was around all these um, young people that were starting companies, and I was living in a house with a bunch of people who were students at the Stanford Business School. So that's how an English major from the University of Michigan that knew nothing about business ended up later on going to business school and becoming what 
I like to say my um, claim to fame is becoming the lowest paid person ever to graduate from the Stanford Graduate School of Business. <laughs> that's that's an interesting claim, but I, um, <laughs> you, you certainly, as, as we're finding out, you've had amazing experiences, and uh, sometimes when you do that, then money does not become the object. And I am guessing that's sort of where uh, the hate piece came in, right? So for anyone that doesn't know, there's this place called Hate Ashbury. It's Hate Street and Ashbury uh, Street or Park, I guess, uh, who made it famous originally, I believe, were people like Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin and um, lead singer of Grateful Dead who, uh, Phil, uh, um, what is his name? The lead singer of the Grateful Dead. Why am I blanking on that? Anyway, uh, they all lived in the hate. And so it's it's this very cool kind of hipster, although gritty area of the city and still is. And so if you've lived in the hate, you've really sort of become a true San Franciscan, I think. So um, only apropos. Let's let's conclude with the uh, Lucy.com. And how did you go again from working for a senator to the biotech startup to um, but creating this uh, sportswear, women's sportswear retailer, Lucy.com? So I, after business school, I went to work for an ad agency in San Francisco called Goodby Silverstein and Partners, which was doing at the time, they were the new agency after Wyden and Kennedy that was getting some of Nike's work. And so I, um, I've always been a pretty athletic person and I was so lucky to get put on the Nike women's account. So I worked on um, campaigns for um, the Olympics with Peekaboo Street and the um, launch of the WNBA and Lisa Leslie was one of their athletes and um, worked on a basketball campaign f- uh, for young girls. So uh, spent time down in the South going into locker rooms and um, talking to young girls about what they you know aspire to be and what they care about so that we could make messages. So the woman that ran Nike's women's business was a woman by the name of Sue Levin, and she ended up leaving that. This was at the time when everyone was leaving to do internet startups. And so she um, wanted to found the first online women's retailer. Um, So I would go up to Portland and stay overnight each week. I was still living down in San Francisco, but I was in charge of the content piece of that website. And it's now that site, it's the store actually still exists. Federated bought it and it's done the reverse. It's now gone to brick and mortar. Let's come full circle as well. (laughs) So that's interesting. There you have it. I love your story. And speaking of stories, um, you've written a book and I... As a dad that has two daughters as well as a son, I really, really like the title of this book, and I haven't had a chance to read it, although your publisher had had sent me a copy, um, which as soon as I get it, I will read it. It's titled Girls Who Run the World, 31 CEOs Who Mean Business. We're going to get into what that means, too, for another very impactful thing that you've done. Um, But let's talk about the book. I I get a pretty good sense of what it is. I read the... um, the pre-write-up of it, uh, but what is the book about, and what's the purpose, and and you know what is it? Uh, as you put it out into the world, you know what would you like to see come from this book that's launching next week? I have a strong feeling that um, women are just not visible enough in sort of the power echelons of our society, and particularly in the business world. Uh, right now, something like you know six percent of Fortune 500 CEOs are women, and it's 
a headline-making news when one woman gets added to that, which is what happened with uh, Mary Winston this summer from Bed Bath and Beyond. Um, and you know, venture capitalists. We we live in the Bay Area where they're funding tons of companies, but just two percent of the companies that they fund are founded by women and led by women. So my view is we have got to show young girls what is possible for them we there, and there are many women that are out there disrupting all kinds of industries whether it's you know katrina lake that's changing the way we buy clothes and Anne wajiki at 23andme is remaking personal genetics um uh, Tracy Young at Plan Grid is putting blueprints for construction onto iPads, which is like a game changer. Um, so we need role models for girls. There is There are many books out there about historical women. You can read about Amelia Earhart. But modern women that are changing the world is something that there's a huge dearth of. And I want to change that. I really want girls to be able to find themselves in stories of women. I want to demystify what it takes to start a company also. Because um, we see something like uh, Rent, the Redway, <clears throat> Rent the Runway, which is a company that a lot of girls know. But now it's huge and everywhere, and you can rent not just party dresses, but accessories and blue jeans. And the fact is that that company started with Jen Hyman and her partner Jenny Fleiss just going and putting 100 dresses on their credit cards at Bloomingdale's. And they bought the dresses in their own sizes in case they weren't able to sell any, um, rent them. And then they convinced a, you know, a sorority at Harvard to let them do a pop-up shop. So a lot of times the story is actually a lot less intimidating than what you might think. And it's doable. So that's what I want to show girls. Well, I, I, like I said, I am genuinely excited to read it and uh, we'll make sure my 20-year-old and Hopefully my 12-year-old, who is, reads above her level and thinks big thoughts, will uh, dig in. And certainly we'd love lots of people listening to the show. Um, because that, that's actually a, a, an important point that I should make, which is I, made, I wrote the book for teen girls. And that's what I had in my mind. But now that I've written the book, I really do feel that any age woman, whether you're returning to the workforce after having your children or you're you know in your 20s and you're trying to figure out what to do next anyone can benefit from getting the backstory of how women have created something out of nothing most of these women have an entirely new idea there's no roadmap there's no manual but to see how that's done and really understand the story i think is something that can appeal to all ages and not just women, but actually also boys and men. Yeah. I mean, so like I said, I am excited and kudos to you for doing that. Um, this is related to the next question. And that is that <sighs> there was this incredibly tone deaf and surprisingly short sighted, um, hundred most innovative American leaders article that came out in Forbes magazine recently. Um, as most of you probably either know or can figure out, 
there were a lot of women that were missing off that list to the tune of 99 men and one woman that made the list. And I think she was number 57 or so. And um, in the grand scheme of things, like anyone that's successful, that's great, but wasn't particularly like, oh my gosh, they're, you know, they invented 23andMe or some of these other amazing companies. Uh, You wrote an open letter to Forbes, essentially calling them on the carpet very uh, eloquently. And you've seen a lot of uh, women CEO jump onto this. Let's let's start with how does this even happen in today's environment? And then let's talk a little bit about the purpose of the letter and, and how that's building up steam and strength, which it should, because again, I can't imagine how the lack of EQ that went into that. And I know Forbes has apologized since then, but it's like there's not really an apology that you can put forward. And I know part of, I think, what's changed is they have a whole different process that they're going to put into place for next year. But unfortunately, the damage is done. So with that, let's talk a little bit about how does this happen? How did you come to write the letter? And then what's happening as a result of the letter? When you asked me the first question, you know, what did, why did you write this book? I mean, I didn't want to take your, steal your thunder because I knew you were going to ask me about the letter. But that is why I wrote the book, because this is not an ancient problem. This is a modern day problem that women, it's like we have a cultural amnesia that women just don't even exist in this part of society. The part of society where there's money being made, where there's invention being made. These are really important things for everyone to be a part of and particularly for girls to see. So the fact is, it is very possible in today's world that a list will get published that has 99 men and one woman, you know, from a magazine that I am certain is, you know, worried about political correctness, but they they somehow had this oversight. I could talk to you about why exactly that is, but um, I have a 14-year-old daughter and a 17-year-old daughter and I've spent the last 18 months working on this book, and they've had to listen ad infinitum to me saying, you know, everything is possible for you. The sky's the limit. You know, you're going to be so powerful. And then I had to watch my daughter scroll through my Instagram feed and see this headline that's literally, it was under the headline, America's 100 Most Innovative Leaders. And it's 99 men and one woman. And it's just, it's unthinkable, honestly. Um, and so, you know, this is just, it's emblematic of sort of where we're at in terms of women's voices are not being heard and they're just not visible enough. Um, so how does something like that happen? I mean, do you think, obviously we are living in an era today that I would say even five years ago was, it's, it's worse today, right? I think there's definitely a greater, and I don't want to make this political, but a misogynistic overtone to the current administration. And it feels like we've taken steps back versus forward versus when we were under Obama. I don't know if you feel that that is true or if this is, like you said, it's just a, over the last 20 years, it's this amnesia that's happening to us. But for me, it feels like what was always a little bit of a problem has has not progressed and it's actually gone backward instead of forward. But the truth is that... Um in the large companies that have, you know, billion dollar market caps, there still are almost no women. So it's not just that there's a cultural problem in terms of how we think about it. There is an actual problem in terms of just the numbers. So, th- so that's true. And I want to drill on this because I think this is a really important point. That is a problem that I would argue is 
probably been in place for a long time, right? At least as long as America has been here, men were the ones that started a lot of businesses. But we do live in an environment now where theoretically women, you know, have just as much opportunity to go to the Stanfords of the world. They have just as much opportunity to start businesses, although you're right, they don't get as much funding and it's harder. And we've had some of these conversations on the show. I guess where I'd split hairs is Forbes had an opportunity to pick at least 30, 40, 50 women who are innovative because as you pointed out with all the CEOs who have joined forces with you, and it wouldn't take more than like an hour worth of research to sit down and find a thousand innovative women. I've found a lot of them because I invite them to come speak at our events that it's one thing if institutionally we have more men who are in leadership positions and that's wrong and it's changing and it's actually beneficial to business to be diverse and inclusive. But when you go and create a list, when you can sort of pick from anybody, right? And it doesn't have to be a fortune 500 company. It could be a 10 person company. Someone named Mary Lou Jepson, who's creating MRI technology in the form of beanies and belts with a, a project called open water. You know, she's not making any money, super smart. I've seen her speak. She'll come on the show at some point to me, one of the most innovative people, maybe even in the world, irrespective of whether she's a woman or a man. So I'm sorry to get on the soapbox for that, but I think it's an important distinction that we have a systemic problem, but then you have a problem like this where Forbes, it's like, how could you? Like, that's the thing that comes to my mind is how could you not broaden your lens and look and you weren't beholden to just doing it with Fortune 500 companies. And it's actually it's actually particularly egregious because when I set out to write this book and to look for women who are innovators and disruptors, honestly, I could have written about 200 different women than the 31 that I wrote about. There are many, many women out there. Their companies are moving forward. They are changing industries, whether it's um, the packaging industry or the construction industry. Um, cosmetics, the CRISPR, working on genetic engineering. Um, so there's just a lot to choose from. And not only are women having these innovative ideas and birthing companies, but many of them are now becoming unicorns. They're becoming billion-dollar companies, whether that's the Away Suitcase Company, uh, Glossier, Rent the Runway, Stitch Fix. I mean, many of these got a billion-dollar valuation in the same week of this year. So it's, it's remarkable that Forbes uh, felt okay about going forward with that list and you know, all I hope for is that now we've, we're having a big reckoning and uh, there was a huge, you know, outcry and backlash. Uh, over 170 female CEOs have signed on to my open letter to Forbes. They're still writing me to sign on to the letter. Everyone from where, Meg where can, Whitman. Where can people, so we'll put it on the, the blog, but for those listening on iTunes or Stitcher, where can someone go other than just uh, Googling Diana Cap? you know, Forbes letter, where should they go to, it's, to it's read the letter? A, it's on my website, www.dianacapp, that's with a K-A-P-P dot com, and it's, you click on innovation for all, and that's the tagline that we're using right now, um, the hashtag. And, um, you know, women from every part of the country and every industry and traditional people like Meg Whitman and up and comers like um, Eliza Blank, who has opened The Sill, just uh, recently in San Francisco, 
anyway, they're, they all want to make noise and be visible and change the dynamic for girls and women. And one of the things that I feel really strongly about, and it's why I wrote my book the way I did, is the generation of women that are out there right now I feel like it's more difficult to try to make progress on this problem for those women than it is for us to look to girls. Because what we need is for girls coming up to really think differently about themselves. And it's, it's a big problem because when you have lists like the Forbes list coming out in the culture, girls internalize this idea that there are places that are not for them, that they are not leaders or they are not as smart. And there's a ton of research about how, you know, girls in 30 out of 30 countries tested underestimate their IQ, you know, why boys overestimate. And um, girls just need to have a very different view of where they fit into society. And I think this is something that has to happen when they're young girls and an interesting phenomenon is as girls come up through adolescence they actually lose their sense of power so uh, middle school girls will tell you that they'll you know pursue their dream career at a higher rate than high school girls will say that and so it's almost like the more they you know they read about what's going on or they, you know, internalize the cultural messages about where women belong and where they don't, you know, the more they lose their sense of possibility, sense of ambition. It makes me sad hearing that, although it doesn't surprise me. I guess just to build on to your stats, um, and I think it was our guest Robin Toft uh, who runs the Toft Group. Uh, they do executive search, and she's a very strong uh, – I have a book floating around here somewhere. But she cited a stat that I think – Men, uh, if they feel like if they're applying for a job and they have 50% of the skill sets, they'll go for it. Women, unless they have 100% of the skill sets, don't feel confident enough to go for it, which is crazy if you think about it because, you know, it would be good if you're a little more qualified than 50%, but certainly there's probably no one in the world that's 100% qualified for any job or any job that you'd want. So it just reinforces what you're talking about. And, and one of the things that uh, kind of runs through the women in my book and why I think these particular women were able to do something that many women today are not able to do is because they were raised to, um, to view perfectionism as something that is not to be aspired to. So they had parents that really nurtured this idea that it's okay to be messy. It's okay to just go out and try something and take an experiment. And you know what? You're probably going to mess up because all of these women are messing up because there's no way to do any of these things without having some disasters. That's just part of every entrepreneur journey. And girls too often feel that following the directions, do the right thing, be perfect, is those are the ethos to aspire to. So you really need a counter message. So you know, Sarah Blakely, who founded Spanx, she had a dad at the dinner table who was high-fiving her when she would say something that she failed at and asked her every night at dinner, what was your biggest flop today? So it, you have to be explicit about it to send this message to a girl that, you know what, that's, that's 
fine. In fact, that's a good thing because that's how you learn. Well, I think to your broader point up front is I would say to boys and girls, right? Because I think there are people that are not good parents to their kids and don't give all of their kids that same message of it's okay to fail. You can actually learn the most from your failures. It is okay to flop and it is okay to try and fall down and get back up, right? Um, I do want to get back to the letter. We didn't talk about this before, but why do you think you in particular, and I'm seeing just how powerful and fierce and smart and like what a cool person you are, but how is it that you gained so much traction in writing this letter versus, you know, like a Hillary Clinton or someone like that? Like, what do you think it was that you did that really rallied people behind you to, to speak out and, and support this, this letter and this pushback to Forbes? I think it was that the letter came out, you know, directly after the incident and because I'm writing this book, I'm I have a really huge network right now of female CEOs who I can get in contact with. And then they got in contact with their friends and the thing, you know, kind of went viral. And, you know, I'm so lucky as to be able to write a text to Ann Wojcicki and say, will you go on NPR and speak about this? And she was like, of course. And that's why, you know, NPR picked up the story. Um, because they knew they had this great spokesperson and then they hosted the letter. So, um, you know, and also I think this idea about girls is something that people, women in business have a really soft spot for because I think they recognize how unusual they are. Many of them have daughters and they recognize that they have a role to play in society and that we really do need to turn things around for young girls if we want to advance and you know move into the 21st century harnessing all the talent that we have in this country it's you know we we are missing out on talent that is just extraordinary well it's one of the reasons why i love your choice of girls not women but girls and i have to tell you like <clears throat> that's that really struck me when I read that so kudos to you and um, it's nice to know that there's this you know woman CEO whisperer that we have now that can hopefully lead us to uh, bigger and better things and I guess to that end I do want to ask this question I'm starting to ask more and more but if you could wave a magic wand today and change one thing anything what would it be related to this category related or anything? To anything you want it could be curing cancer or it could be you know, 50% of women are CEOs in Fortune 500 companies. It could be Donald Trump trips and, you know, goes to a desert island for a while and gets out of our life. I don't know what it is, but whatever you prefer. I guess, I mean, the number one thing I would change is that we actually start to take climate change seriously and do something about it. Um, more related to the book, it's back to the topic I was just talking about, which is I wish I could wave a magic wand and I could make girls have this feeling inside that they are powerful, they can do anything, they are smart as hell. Um, I just think it would it would change everything if they could grow up actually feeling that way and not fighting against that all the time and always having to kind of, you know, take the cultural messages and somehow, you know, make their way through. Um, it's such a hit on confidence. And I think girls, you know, they're not reaching their full potential because they are stopping themselves from going for it. 
So gentle suggestion, now that you do have this, you're wielding this power, climate change is a huge deal. The government doesn't seem to be doing much about it. We are seeing more and more this sense of conscious capitalism. Maybe your next book is rallying all of the smart female and then whatever males that are smart, smart enough to follow along, CEOs of these companies to do something about climate change. And some of them already are, and so I won't pretend that they're not, but it could be a good way for you to channel your goodness and your forces and your writing power to to get people to make a difference. Well, I'm really excited at my event in New York, which is at the We Work Now on the day the book comes out, October 15th. I'm going to run a panel of three women. We're calling it the, you know, women that Forbes forgot. And one of those women is called Sarah Paigiu, and her company is Blue Land. And she has She's remaking all kinds of household products like cleansers, and she is putting them in tablet form so that you just have one plastic bottle, and then the tablets come to your house, and it's for a whole array of things. And I think that's just, that's a brilliant idea. And the story about how that came to be is also incredible. She she didn't know anything about how you would do the chemistry to you know put liquids into tablet form. So she went on her LinkedIn and she searched under the name chemist, under the word chemist, and she sent out a hundred notes to strangers asking if you were me and you wanted to figure this out, you know, what would you do? So a lot of what these women do to figure out their businesses are things that any of us could do. You know, when you know what? This is an important piece and I'm sorry to interrupt you. It's the lack of ego though. Because I would bet that a lot of guys wouldn't do that. I'm just like her where it's like, I don't care. I'll do whatever it takes to get out there. So I love that story. And I think that's an important piece to point out is guys sometimes stereotypically are too egotistical to get out of their own way to ask for help or ask for directions and things like that. And it works against them. And clearly in this case, what a brilliant idea on her part. Because the truth is, it's really never been a better time to start a business in America because so much is accessible to you. We can learn just a tremendous amount on YouTube and by Googling and having, you know, access to these enormous networks like LinkedIn. So there's a lot of opportunity for people that don't know and don't have the contacts and the in to access you know, the information that they need to start something. Um, And that's part of where the social network thing is positive, right? I know a lot of people today are railing against it and it it has done a lot of probably societal damage. But part of the way, for instance, I use Facebook is I do a lot of crowdsourcing and polling and I get really great answers across anywhere from like smoked meats to, you know, how do I do this or where should I buy this and things like that. So Um, So I agree with you. And it really is the tools to get set up and running are easier than ever before. You can get a website in two seconds or put it up on Facebook or Instagram. And um, it's it's a great time to be doing business. This is where I want to shift a little bit more about you. And you've already told us a lot of things about you. So this is probably a little harder than normal. But I do like to ask guests to tell us something about themselves that people may not know that they're willing to share. This is an embarrassing story that I'll that I'll kind, dare to share, but I'm telling it because it's 
because I've written a book that's about career and I've written a book that's about not being afraid to fail. So I have to share this story, which is when I arrived at my biotech company, Affimax, it was one week before the initial public offering. So I was quickly getting up to speed on putting together press releases. And at the time, we still had to send them out over the wire to PR Newswire, like we'd put it through a fax machine. And then we would put it in every mailbox in the company so that everyone could see the news that we had released. So I put out my first press release of the job for Affimax's initial pubic offering. And I put it in a hundred mailboxes and I sent it out over the wire and it did get corrected and all of that. But it just is probably the thing that everyone at that company remembers about me. And, um, you know, it kind of goes back to those tickets. Like I'm not good with the small details, but that was a worse detail than, than many to, to screw up. Yeah, all the letters you could have <laughs> left out of that, the L was the one that was the really critical one. But I survived it. I survived it. Well, in you know, to your point, sometimes it's our failures that make us better, right? And you still remember that versus some other nice thing that happened or amazing thing that happened. Um, you've written a book, but I also like to help readers build their library. So in addition to getting the you know Girls Who Run the World, uh, a book that you've read over the last 12 plus months that spoke to you or maybe that you're reading now that you'd like to share with the audience. I'm going to share two books. There's a, a new book that I'm reading, which is The 57 Bus by Dashka Slater. And it's the story of the um, young person in Oakland who was lit on fire on a bus. Um, it's a transgender individual and What's interesting about the book is the story is told from the point of view of the the transgender individual and also from the point of view of the perpetrator. And so you do develop a deeper understanding for an empathy for both characters, which I think is is interesting. Um, they're actually reading that in my daughter's school right now, and it, it really made a huge impact on her, and we've talked a lot about the book. And a, an old book, that I, but I had just never read it, is The Art of Racing in the Rain, and I'm a new dog owner, and that's a novel that takes place from the point of view of a dog. And I'm telling you, it changed, it changed me so deeply. Um, I didn't want the dog. My son went off to college and we ended up, this was like the whole filler was getting the dog. I don't consider myself a dog person, but this book really takes you inside the idea that the dog has feelings and emotions. And I was just, God, I just went to a talk with Tiffany Schlein and she was, it's her new book is called 26, 24, six. So it's about taking a one-day tech Sabbath. But what she said in her talk was that we're so on our phones that dogs are becoming depressed because they're not getting enough eye contact. And, you know, anyway, so The Art of Racing in the Rain just made me – I love the dog in that book, like, is so happy when the owner leaves the TV on during the day and, you know, they realize there's this whole world out there and – um, I love thinking about my dog having, you know, this whole inner life and, you know, it, it makes me, I think, a better person and dog owner to think about it from Lotsey's perspective. Well, it's a good one. And uh, as someone that owns a dog and actually just got a second dog a few months ago, 
they do change the dynamic of the house and they bring a different energy and a fun and a joy. And so I'll add that one to the list as well. This is the beauty of me. You, if you have a dog, you've got to read this I book. Absolutely you will. absolutely yeah. do. Well, and you have to get in touch with me after now. and I tell will. me how much it changes you. I, I absolutely <laughs> will. Um, last question. And uh, it's going to be anticlimactic after all these you know, fun and cool discussions here. Uh, but I do like to find out how people think about this. And by the way, I did look up. I wasn't being rude on my phone. Jerry Garcia, who I know is the lead singer of The Grateful Dead, and I don't know why I could not think of his name. I can only think of Phil Lesh. But um, you're on a proverbial deserted island. You can take one album with you. Don't worry about the technology. Uh, which album would you take and why? Uh, I take Pink Floyd, The Wall, because Comfortably Numb is my favorite song, and I would probably just listen to it over and over. I might not listen to that many other songs on the album, but I absolutely love that song. I'm not even exactly sure why, but something about it just really moves me, and I listen to it a lot now and would want to listen to it forevermore. Well, I have to tell you, I knew I liked you from the jump. That is one of my all-time favorite songs, and that is one that's probably in my top... 10 that I consider. I've been gravitating toward the Beatles' White Album recently. Part of it, because it's a double album, and that's the beauty of Pink Floyd, The Wall, is it's a double album. But that is a song, and I probably have sat and listened to that in the dark in my headphones over the last, what, 30 or 40 years, a million times. So just like it takes you to a different place, it and a it's a place. mood changer, and yeah. it just like I feel it way down inside my body when I listen to that song. Yeah, there are, well, I shouldn't say there aren't that many songs, but it is it is a song that really stands out in that regard. So um, I could It brings me back to high school, too, because I'm a kid of the 80s. I am in the same yeah, boat, and I remember yeah. going to see the movie with my dad that is one of the first R-rated movies I ever saw and buying that album. And yeah, so it brings back fond memories as well. So nicely, nicely done on that. Um, this is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O, the host of the What to Know podcast. And I've just spent an amazing 30-ish minutes with book author, journalist, and member of the SFO, uh, the San Francisco Writers Grotto, uh, among many other things, um, Diana Cap. Really looking forward to your book, uh, anyone that has not gone in and read the letter, go read the letter. You know where to go see it. Uh, really looking forward to reading some of your book suggestions now and looking forward to seeing what happens because I feel like you are really one of these change agents that we need today and you're doing it in a not so quiet but confident, powerful way. So kudos to you for doing that. Thanks, Aaron. It was, it was great to be on. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, and view the podcast page at w2ogroup.com slash what to know.